the world we grew up in is so international, so globalized, and it's like it's like with Arweave and, and, and storing data on our drive, this question of what institutions can prevent, what they can control, and how communication is central to all this. So like smart people can figure out a way to, like you said, peer-to-peer or communicate and globally build brands. Your project, The Many, directly relates to this, I think, in some ways. I think that um, it's also about decentralizing and empowering people to have access to utilize what their potentials are. Um, so it's in a sense, it ties into a web 3.0 concept where borders and um, restrictions are lifted. You're tuned to the RCast, where we talk about the blockchain on the RCast and how your data remains the RCast. Where well, R-Drive is the topic, censorship-resistant permanence. Yeah, we got it. Welcome to the R-Cast. It's your host, Andrew. This is episode 26 with my friend Carlton Chang. I actually went to a high school that had a lot of international students. And Carlton was a boarding student who later went on to Boston University. And he's the first guest we've had on the R-Cast who actually owns a zipper patent. What? We talk about his new project, The Many, and how he has been using the concept of decentralization to help teach people primarily in foreign languages and other topics. And on this episode, we talk about how Arweave could be useful for teachers hosting their resumes. So students know their history, they know when the resumes have been edited and how. So it was an interesting conversation where we got into a lot of the philosophy behind Arweave and behind Carlton's cool projects. So thank you for being on the show, Carlton. Some other exciting updates. Inferno is still going strong. That's what's up. Be sure to upload that data for those R drive tokens. It's still popping. You can check the leaderboard at Inferno dot rdrive.io and you can see how much data you've uploaded uh what tokens are being rewarded and when also we're starting our first ever build and chill on november 11th on the discord you can hang out with our brilliant genius developers and talk about just how to build these amazing apps that live on the permaweb that is exciting so here's my interview with carlton right here on the artcast Okay, friends, welcome back to another episode of the Artcast. And this week we have a guest, someone I've known over 20 years, we realized. Um, my friend Carlton, I went to high school with him. He's launched a really cool project called The Many. And we're going to talk about some permanent storage solutions, his really interesting career. First of all, Carlton, thank you for being on the Artcast, for making time. Hey, Andrew, thanks for the invite. Where are you living these days? I'm actually currently in the uh, southern part of China, which is about very close to Hong Kong. Where did you grow up? I was actually raised in Taiwan until elementary school. Then I was in California for my junior high school. And then obviously I went to high school with you. Then I spent five years in Boston. So... My life is pretty much one third, one third, one third. But China it was actually new for me um, when I started my career. Where did you go to middle school? It's actually um, near San Jose, a place called Harker. I'm not sure if you know about it. You must have built a really interesting network during your high school years that you've taken to continue with. I think that the only times you make a true friend based on personality as opposed to business skins is um, before college. 
like the guys that I hang out with are actually from high school days. So in a boarding school life, your activity area is confined to the school campus. So yeah, it's sort of, it's like a war body syndrome that you are confined in a small space and spend so much time with the same group. So you know those guys well. So going forward um, versus college where you meet more people, but you are a almost an adult. So you start to think about if I build a bond with this person, is it because he's going to help me in my chem lab or is he going to do my econ homework versus saying in high school, it's more than saying, oh, hey, the Andrew guy likes radio. I like radio. Let's be friends. And yeah, I would think that as we get older, we start to put priorities over the more, how do you call it? The more secular elements of life. (laughs) What were some of the things that maybe in high school helped you in college and in your career? In my senior year, I was able to take the economics class. And little did I know that if I pass both of my AP exams, I get two credits in college. By the time we graduate with all the AP degrees, you can almost take a year off of college. <laughs> yeah, that, that was my experience too. I took APs and I was able to finish in three years in college for, so I could do the um, music stuff, which was, which was really interesting. Uh, it, it worked out well, you know, and I remember taking like, getting credit so I didn't have to take Spanish. It was just like, we were ready, man. Um, what did you major in, in at BU? I actually started out, was hoping to uh, go into medical school. So the first two years, I was heavily into biology and chemistry. But then later I found out I spent too much time in class. So I switched to economics major. I took the easy way out, but. (laughs) You were telling me a little bit about, you were early in the blockchain world, kind of before a lot of us. Yeah, so I would say that in the past 10 years, I worked in the zipper uh, manufacturing, which not many people are familiar with, but it's a part that everybody uses almost on a daily basis and nobody really thinks about it. So by making the components, I guess I was able to really study the details of the machineries, the regulations about the dye stuff that's required and the chemistry that's prohibited, and then the exporting of the manufacturer stuff to um, the assembly factories. And I actually had to work with a design team that's based in the U.S. Um, Nike's headquarters actually in Oregon, in Portland. So it's an international business, although it's a small component. You have had a lot of success with that, and it's given you opportunity to start new projects. And you were talking a lot about communication and how... People, when they're able to to feel more fluent in different languages, it can help them a lot with their careers. You also told me you were early with blockchain. And I'm just curious about like briefly your story about that, because that's interesting. Like you you were familiar with the technology before a lot of us were. Yeah, actually, let's start with the blockchain. 
um, my cousin, he actually got into Bitcoin in as early as 2011. That's the famous story when somebody bought a pizza for 100,000 coins of Bitcoin, how you can purchase those just for fun. So I look up the research and say, how does blockchain work? How does the double spending is prevented? How it can become a medium for a transaction? For example, if I want Andrew to host a show for me and there's no way for me to pay in different currency, then I could buy some Bitcoin and send it to Andrew. He will receive it in two hours. And the transaction fee is um, minuscule as opposed to Western Union where they charge a hefty handling fee or any wiring international wise that was available back then. So by looking into it, I actually, at one point I had 200 Bitcoin. So if I held them until even now, there will be $4 million. <laughs> but, but, but I sold them when I was tripled. <laughs> so I started with $20,000 and in the course of four years, they tripled. I thought I was the smartest man alive. I said, hell yeah, I'm going to sell them. <laughs> then year after year, I start kicking myself saying, why did I sell them? Why did I sell them? At least you didn't lose, lose that much. <laughs> it's like some people, right? <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. Because um, Bitcoin was actually interesting when, when my cousin first heard of it, um, it was actually about 11 cents per coin. And wow. then when I got into it, it was about a little over $100 a piece. And then last year at the peak, it was about $68,000 per piece. And then since then, it crashed to about $20,000 a piece. So just imagine from 10 cents to even now $20,000 a piece. It's wild. I mean, that's one of the things that we talk about. Like, we use the metaphor if Bitcoin is financial sovereignty, our weave is kind of like data sovereignty. Like, you can own your data in a decentralized way. That's kind of like a metaphor we talk about a lot. And do you think that the adoption in China has been as widespread as other places, or, or is it kind of like, do people talk about it? Actually, in 2015, when Bitcoin started making a big presence, there were actually three major exchanges that are still going on today. And then all three of the managers were invited to Beijing. And after revealing everything in the span of three years, um, China decided to illegalize any trading of uh, cryptocurrency. And there was actually a very, very big dam in the mountain area in China, that's like the biggest in the world. And all the electricity were going to waste because there's no manufacturing there. So people set up Bitcoin mining shops like near the dam. So imagine if you go to Hoover Dam and you see like just rows and rows of shacks filled with um, mining rigs. That's what it would look like back then. But in 2018, they outlawed everything under the guise that Bitcoin mining consumes too much energy. So now um, you can trade locally or trade peer to peer. But if you are a Chinese national, then you are not allowed to trade um, 
the public markets. Uh, it's it's interesting how this world, our, our world, we grew up in the millennials, right? We're like the older millennials. The world we grew up in is so international, so globalized, and it's like it's like with Arweave and, and, and storing data on our drive, this question of what institutions can prevent, what they can control, and how communication is central to all this. So like smart people can figure out a way to, like you said, peer-to-peer or communicate and globally build brands. Your project, The Many, directly relates to this, I think, in some ways. You were telling me before we started about the background. How did you launch this app and, and what were some of the ideas behind starting it up? I think that um, it's also about decentralizing and empowering people to have access to utilize what their potentials are. Um, so it's, in a sense, it ties into a Web 3.0 concept where borders and um, restrictions are lifted. For example, uh, you took Spanish in high school, right? Yeah. Okay, so um, imagine if you want to practice your Spanish and don't have a Spanish friend, then you're pretty much on your own. Uh, tutors are way out of your pocket as a student. You could, there's no way we could have afforded a tutor. And if you talk to your peers, they don't know any better. So... If my app was around back then, you can spend $10 and be connected to somebody in Spain, in Barcelona, and he might also be into radio. So you guys have a common interest to focus on. And when you have a target, although your Spanish is very rough, but the other guys knows what your intentions are. So he will be able to guide you and you will have enough practice. And although what they talk to you might not be the same exact course material but hey language is language the more you hear from the authentic speakers the more you will pick up we all learn from imitation you learn you try to copycat from the best and then you put in your own thoughts and then you eventually hopefully you surpass it and um, have your own style I think that's the same with music, with art, with uh, designing. You have to have a guidance. But I think that too many institutions are trying to control this guidance. The only way for me to learn was to pay half the amount of tuition to a private institute. And they might have a teacher that's competent or might not be competent. What are some of the technical elements? Like you've you had some devs build you build the app, right? And it's on it's on the Apple it's on the Apple Store. I think the app was built like a marketplace. So it's like it's much like shopping on um, on eBay. So when you set up a profile on my app, it's like you're setting up a stall in a farmer's market, and people can browse a this certain Andrew, what do you have for offer? And I think the unique project that my project offers is that you just have to be yourself. For example, you went to um, Stanford. Now, if somebody from out of the States also is planning to go to Stanford, he gets accepted, but he doesn't know where to stay. He doesn't know what to eat. He doesn't know what to prepare. 
then he can contact this Mr. Andrew saying, um, hi, Andrew, I see that you have this past experience. Would you mind sharing this with me? So it's like Uber. You already went there. You already done it. Now you can share the experience and show people how you got here. Instead of trying to pretend to be something that you're not and hoping that you will gain attraction. Because I think everybody has what we economic jargon call relevant advantage. For example, um, I speak Chinese, but Andrew doesn't. So relatively, my language skill in Asia will be more useful than Andrew. But if we go on a trip to Spain, then the otherwise will be true. Andrew will have a relatively stronger point in Spain, in survival than me. You don't have to falsely bring yourself to be something bigger than yourself. You just have to stay true. And people know that there's no point for you to lie about your experience because, hey, um, what if I don't want to go to Stanford? What if I want to go to Boston University? Then pretending to be a Stanford graduate wouldn't benefit me because when somebody asks me, hey, Carlton, what's there to eat in Boston? Or how's the weather like? Somebody from California wouldn't know that Boston has 10 months of winter. Relative advantage. I really like that term. And it, it applies to so many things. And it applies to different technical platforms. Actually, um, I, I actually did my research on the R-Drive website. And I saw how you, can, how you can pack a folder and then just upload the whole thing and pay the token then you, everything in the folder, maybe a website or a music file, will be associated to the link, much like a domain. But my question is that I know how to load my version 1.0 there. Now the step is that um, how would people know where to find the next issue? Or if I made a mistake, like a genuine mistake, if I was a journalist, and I cover Ukrainian Russian issue. And then I definitely wanted to make amendments so that I don't falsely lead people into something that's not true. Now, how do I stop the traffic going to the wrong direction, but let people know that? Um, so I was thinking, is there a way to leave like a link at the bottom that leads to something that's blank for now? But people will definitely know that the next issue is here when it's ready. With RFS, the RE file system, it just puts the newest version there if it has the same name as what you come to when you go to the transaction. But you can look at the transaction history and see the older version. For example, if I have a, a new Shakespeare poem, let's call it Romeo and, Romeo and Juliet, and then um, after I add it in the next chapter, I upload the whole thing under the same name. So and audience coming in, they will see that this file has two entries, two ledgers pretty much, and they can know that version one looks like this and version two has a second chapter to it. Sam Williams, the guy, the co-creator of Arweave, when you look at the history of how governments have changed information, like if you look at the pictures where Stalin erased people who he, he, he killed, that's interesting to see what they wanted you to know. So that's that it holds you doubly accountable in that way. You can change it, but you people will can see how it's been changed. So um, yeah, that's I think that makes sense. So if someone were to 
for example, if they had, if they linked to a uh, transaction outside of the many, you could see the history of their resume updated. Maybe they took off that they worked at Disney because they don't want people to know that. You say, oh, but this person did, which with Web2, I think is harder in some instances, you know? Our drive is definitely very valuable if you're like a journalist. You don't have safety storage when you are not on your home turf. For example, if you feel like a war journalist or a photographer, you take a photo and you want to be safe the moment you take it because somebody can mess up with your, your memory card. They can, they can trash your camera. But if you have ROE, you can load it before anybody can touch it. So I think um, for, and for, I guess for people who need to share a lot of data, but yeah, like I have a rough idea of how my platform wants to become, but I don't have all the solutions yet. I mean, you know my background, I know about this much about programming. <laughs> What's next for the many? And how can our community members get involved if they're interested in, in helping out? One story I want to share with you is that on the TikTok, there's this guy called um, Shendor. He's actually from South Africa and he runs a wildlife zoo. So I got in contact with him just two days ago and he's pretty interesting setting like a virtual zoo tour on my app. So it's not just about learning something that's in school. For example, like, um, and there's no way you're gonna let a kid play with Cheetah, but you can, you can place an order to Shendor and saying, hi, my kids really like your Cheetah. Can you do like a, like a mock-up session? So um, they will be doing a video conference and then you can be driving on the Saharas, exploring like sceneries that's no way you will be traveling with a kid, but if you want them to see how the African plants look like. So it's more about like sharing the experience aside from um, just knowledge in general. You can use it for fun. Like there was this guy, I think he's called the Red Rocket or whatever. He's a internet clown. So back when COVID was a thing in the States, he would charge people $200 per hour so he'll do magic tricks over Zoom. Yeah, uh, one thing I forgot to mention is that um, the platform is built as a global project. So all along we have been talking about assuming everything is built like intended for the US citizens only, but, which is not because um, like I said, Shandor, he's living in South Africa and I'm in Asia, you're in California. so. My goal is that in a Web 3.0 environment where we are physically located would not hinder the spread of intelligence and um, everybody can be smarter, just different approaches. So I think at this time now, we might be able to find ways how, how the projects can be linked. That's really cool. So like not just education, other ways of people connecting like in a human way. That's really important. Finding the human story and, and the human things behind this technology and letting the internet make our lives better, right? That's kind of the, that's kind of the dream. Seems like that's the part of the, the plan for the many. It's just the many network.com. There are actually download links on there. 
right now it's in Chinese and English, so you can switch back and forth. And the many app right now um, can be operated in English and in Chinese. And if I make more money, I can make Spanish, French, Italian. So I'm hoping that everybody can participate. Thank you, Carlton, for dropping that wisdom. Great interview. Be sure to tune in. We'll be back on November 14th with another great episode of the Rcast. Remember, Inferno is still going strong. We have the build and chill on the 11th, and we'll see you all soon. Know before you stow and decentralize with RIO.